Well, it's so good to be back with you. As you guys know, we spent uh, almost two full weeks back up in Spokane, uh, seeing friends and family and church friends and family, and that was a great delight. That's where we spent, where my wife was born, where I spent at least 15 years of my life was back up in Spokane. So thanks for freeing us to be there. You guys were in good hands. I'm so grateful for Rich and Tommy and uh, Luke and Jordan and others. Uh, you guys were in good hands when I was gone. I understand you were fed well by the preaching of God's word, and so I'm so grateful for that. Um, it's really good to be back. Really good to be back. I thought about you often, prayed for you often. Um, and, you know, one of the things I, I thought about uh, as we were away on summer break is that um, you know, summer is a time that's really filled with, with lots of potential. Potential for really good things and also potential for things that are not so good. Um, what I mean is, is that summer is sort of our time to, you know, pull back and relax and ease up and take a break from the grind of life. And that's true. There, there is a sense when we can do that to some extent during the summer. And, and yet we can tend to let that bleed into our spiritual life as well. To take a break ease up, pull back, ease up on the urgency, let the word of God begin to fall to the wayside, and, and yet summer is to be the opposite of that. That's why I kept thinking about, okay, what is, a, what is a summer well spent? And a summer well spent is a life of radical dependence upon God through his word. So when that does for me is raise the question, have you ever thought about what your final words should be before you die. Have you ever thought about what your final words could and should be before you step off the planet into eternity? Because I can't think of any words more important than what the Apostle Paul said just before he died. You remember his situation. He was an old man in prison in Rome, on death row for the gospel, awaiting certain death, and in very solemn words, he said this just before his own execution. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is now waiting for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Did you hear what he said there? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You see, that or some version of that should be your final words before you step off the planet into eternity. And so what that does for me then is raises the question, okay, how then do we have a faith that does not fizzle? How do we not crash and burn our lives on the jagged rocks of sin? How can we be certain that we can persevere to the very end and see God? How can we ensure that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and drift away into apostasy? Has God provided anything to help us? And the answer is absolutely he has. Listen very carefully. Here's how he has done that. The path of holy perseverance, firm until the end, is the path of radical dependence upon God through his word. That's the answer. Scripture is the answer. God's word is the guarantee. Or should I say radical dependence upon God through his word is the guarantee that we can have a faith that does not fizzle out in the end. Because you know, you know that well-known, often used phrase, once saved, always saved. It's true. It really is true. But it doesn't go nearly far enough. See, it skips that whole part in the middle that says that the perseverance of our faith firm until the end requires tenacious dependence upon God that keeps us persevering until the end and does not fall away. And you see that diehard faith that perseveres to the end, that's exactly the issue that we see in our text this morning. 
And we were still in First John, but as I thought about a summer well spent and the radical dependence, how we, in the summer we have to up the ante of dependence upon God, it made me want to pause and spend a little time in Psalm 119 this morning because Psalm 119 wants you to know that to persevere in holiness, to finish the course and keep the faith and persevere in to the end, you must master the virtue of desperation. The part of the essence of what it means to believe in Christ is that we must come to grips with the fact that all we are on our own, by ourselves, is nothing more than spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. And that what we have to come to grips with, what we have to understand is that central to the Christian life, the jugular vein of the Christian life is the very word that God has provided. That what this is, This is not just some book. This isn't just some piece of literature. That this is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. And you know about Psalm 119. You know about it well. It is a poem. A highly structured, carefully crafted poem of Hebrew poetry. And it has 176 verses, and every single verse is about the exact same thing, namely about the supremacy and the centrality and absolute sufficiency of God's word. Psalm 119, you understand, is 176 reasons why the word of God should have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And the reason why it should is because the world is not interested in encouraging you in your faith. There is a devil out there whose sole aim is the destruction of your faith and the ruin of your soul. We all possess in our chest the most lethal instrument of evil and damage known to man called the sinful human heart. That's what that means is that the odds are stacked against us. We will not make it to the end. We will not persevere. We will not keep the faith. Unless, unless we use God's word in the way he wants us to use his word, which is as a means of survival. So let's go to the text. If you have our notes this morning, here's where we're going. Either way, this is where we're going. I want you to see from our text three urgent expressions. Three urgent expressions of radical dependence necessary for a life of Christ-exalting righteousness. Three urgent expressions of radical dependence necessary for a life of Christ-exalting righteousness. And let's add perseverance to the list. And so the first urgent expression of radical dependence is this. Number one, you must plead with God to renew your mind. You must plead with God to renew your mind if you're going to make it to the end. Now, here's what's really profound about verses 33 through 40 in Psalm 119. It's not only that all eight verses begin with the Hebrew letter He or H in English, but that every single verse in this stanza, except for the last one, begins with an urgent request of helpless dependence. In fact, Hebrew grammarians have a name for the particular kind of expression here, the the verb construction. It's called the causative active. The causative active. Meaning, the writer is asking God to do something in his life, to cause something to happen in his life. In fact, everything the poet prays here, you could legitimately insert the word cause into the translation. For instance, verse 33, it says, teach me, But you could legitimately translate that as, cause me to learn. Verse 34, it says, give me understanding, because you could legitimately translate that as, cause me to understand. Verse 35, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Cause my heart to be inclined. Cause my heart to, cause my eyes to not look at worthless things. Do you see? That's why I'm talking about radical dependence this morning because that is exactly the issue on the table for the psalmist. You see, what these verses are, these are expressions of urgent dependence and radical trust, which is, by the way, the only way to persevere in holiness firm until the end. 
And you can tell that verses 33 and 34, they are connected. Connected by the theme of needing God's help to understand God's word because this is where all life change and transformation actually begins. And so look what he says, verses 33 through 40. He says, teach me, Yahweh, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and I will keep it with all of my heart. So do you see the connection? In two different ways, he's asking for divine assistance and asking to understand the text. He sits himself down, as it were, before the podium of Yahweh as a learner and a pupil and a student and a disciple with Yahweh as the master teacher and divine professor. And in verse 33, he quite literally says, cause me to learn, Yahweh the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Which is interesting, isn't it? That he views Yahweh himself as the instructor of his own word, which of course he is. And that of course doesn't negate the need for human teachers and preachers and professors, for they also are a means that God uses to teach us his word, but, but rather what the poet expresses here is radical dependence upon Yahweh to be his ultimate teacher in and through all other teachers and preachers. In other words, at the end of the day, all right understanding of God's word is a gift from God himself. Which doesn't mean we don't have to think hard, because we do. It doesn't mean we don't have to study diligently, because we do. It doesn't mean we don't have to meditate vigorously, because we do. I want you, you must be greedy for the greater riches of the Bible. You must dig and claw and sweat with the, with the claws of your mind to see what the living God has to say. But when it all is said and done, at the end of the day, in and through all your meditation, when you understand the text, that is a gift from God himself. So the knife edge of tension is clear, isn't it? You must study the text like crazy to see what God has to say. But on the other hand, you must do so on your knees, as it were, pleading with God to cause you to see what's there in the text. Because at the end of the day, all right understanding is the means to all holy living. See, if you don't know the text, you can't be transformed by the text. You can't apply what you don't know. You cannot become what you've never discovered. Yes, God the Holy Spirit is the great sanctifier of our lives, absolutely true. But the holy chisel that he uses to carve our lives into the image of Jesus Christ is the truth of Holy Scripture because it's not called the sword of the Spirit for nothing. So the obvious question is, how is your Bible reading going? How's it going? And, and when I ask that question, when I say Bible reading, I don't mean some legalistic way where we merely check the box. Rather, I mean, do you strive for meaningful, heartfelt, desperate dependence upon God as you contemplate the sacred text? That's exactly how the Bible wants you to read the Bible. The question is, is that how you read the Bible? Do you sit down with anticipation that you are about to hear the voice of the living God? Do you have a sense of desperation knowing that you need God's help to understand God's word? Because the question is, what does that look like? What does that look like to read God's word with desperation? And it looks like three things, three things, three ways that it looks like to read your Bible with desperation. It is before and during and after you read. Before, during, and after you read. You see, before you read, you must plead with God for eyes to see what's there. While you read, you mutter prayers back to God as you think about the text. And after you read, you plead with God to help you apply and be transformed by the text. Because look at the end of verse 33. Look what happens when we get a God-given understanding of the text. Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes. Here it is. And I will 
keep it to the end. So you see it, the, the, the byproduct of tenacious dependence upon God as we rely upon him to understand his word. What happens when Yahweh causes us to see the way of his statutes, when he protects us from our own interpretive bias and blindness and laziness and opens our eyes to the meaning of the text, the psalmist says, I will keep it to the end. Meaning what? Meaning lifelong holiness and perseverance to the very end. Because you would agree, wouldn't you, that evidence of true transformation is not merely that we began the race, but that we finished the race firm until the end. And to get there, we need new minds. Which is why he prays what he does in verse 34. Look what he says. He says, Give me understanding, cause me to understand, and I will keep your law, and I will keep it with all of my heart. I mean, can you see what he's asking? Cause me to see, God. Cause me to understand what's there in the text, because when that happens, when there is a God-awakened understanding to what's there on the page, which is exactly what he's asking for, Inevitably, that produces a life of profound life change and transformation, or as the poet puts it, I will keep your law, and I will keep it with all of my heart. Which is interesting, isn't it? What the word of God unleashed in his life was not some half-hearted, hesitant, begrudging obedience, but something consuming, passionate and radical and sincere and urgent and authentic as he sought to keep God's word with all of his heart. Because you understand that God has zero interest in mere external conformity to his word when we would much rather be sinning. Now, what delights the heart of God, what thrills the heart of God is a passionate delight to do what God commands. That's exactly what the psalmist wants, which means the question for you is, is that what you want also? Do you want to keep God's law with all of your heart? Do you want passionate, consuming driving, persistent, relentless devotion to the word of God? Or are you what some people are, a fine print Christian? Meaning some people, some people, they declare in big bold letters their allegiance to Christ publicly. But the fine print of their life secretly says that some areas of their life will remain under their domain. That some pockets and areas and issues in their life will remain under their, their jurisdiction. God can't have that. God can't get to that. That is mine. And that is hands off. Is that where you are at all? Can you see any of that in your life? Because if so, that's, that's a really scary place to be. Because unless something happens to you and reverses your trajectory, you might only be a couple years and a couple steps away from total and complete apostasy. But you don't have to go down that road. And, and you must not either. Because Christ is always there in his word, ready to meet you ready to satisfy you, ready to supply what you need to do what he commands, ready to give you the power you need to persevere in holiness, firm until the end. And where that all begins is when you get a new mind and a God-awakened understanding of the text. And that's the first expression of radical obedience necessary to live a life of Christ-exalting righteousness and perseverance, which brings us to urgent expression number two. Number two, you must plead with God to renovate your life. You must plead with God to renovate your life. Because as I have studied Psalm 119 over the years, it, it has dawned on me the life-changing potential of this psalm. 
What I mean is, as you look at the profound and consuming holiness and obedience that this psalm both describes and demands, it, it dawned on me that even if you kept just one stanza in this psalm, the whole thing is broken up into a series of stanzas of eight verses, right? And even if you, you could pick any stanza of eight verses and you could devote the rest of your life to just keeping those eight verses, you could read only those eight verses the rest of your life, devote your life to keeping those eight verses, and if you did, you would be the most godly person on the face of the planet. Seriously. Pick any eight and you were to devote your life to obeying that, you would be the most godly and humble and righteous person on the face of the planet. The problem is, the problem is, although we are called to keep Psalm 119, we cannot keep Psalm 119 because on our own, at best, we are but spiritual paraplegics. In any estimation of ourselves that are higher than that, we are living in a dream world, which is precisely why the psalmist prays what he does in verse 35. Look at the text. He says, make me, literally, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For in it I take pleasure. You know what that is right there? That's one of the most radical expressions of helpless dependence found in the pages of scripture and it is precisely the way we should pray in our lives also because the apostle paul did say did he not in romans 7 that there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh and what he meant was was his ability rather lack of ability to be holy and did not Christ say in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing? That is exactly what he said. And that is precisely what drives the psalmist to pray. Make me, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. In other words, God, I need you to intervene and supply the very power that I need to do what you command. That's what the psalmist prays here is not the abdication of his responsibility, but the admission of his depravity and his urgent need for sovereign grace. He's fully responsible to obey. He knows that that doesn't change. But he is also fully responsible to plead and to pray for the very power to do what God demands. To make him obey cause him to obey. The question is, is that how you pray also? Because my question is, if not, then what are these words doing on the page if they are not the very paradigm that we are to use for our own lives as we plead for God's power? I've said this before. God is not like Pharaoh who commands us to make bricks without straw and then beats us when we don't meet the quota? No, no, God provides in his son, through his word, by his spirit, all the power we need to do what God commands. And then God has got the audacity at the end to reward us at the end for everything done. In and yet, inquiring minds want to know, why does he want this? Why does he want to be caused, made to walk the path of God's commands? What are his motives in wanting to be holy and obedient and righteous? Look at the text, verse 35. Cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For in it I take pleasure. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. Pleasure. Joy, delight, satisfaction. I mean, it just radically changes, does it not? Our conception of what obedience is and means. I love your commands, God. I love it when you tell me what to do, God. Because he rightly understands that his battle for his holiness is simultaneously the battle for his happiness. That the pursuit of his purity is science pleasure. That the more sanctified he is, the more satisfied he becomes. That the path of God's commands is not the obstacle to his joy, but the object 
of his joy. And so can you see the, the, the sacred, the message of the sacred poet here? Desperate dependence leads to radical obedience in which is found our highest happiness. So the question is, church, what ails you this morning? What troubles you this morning? What burdens, what fears, what difficulties, what challenges, what sins tempt you to veer off the path of pleasure-filled obedience to God's commands? Because what you have here in the text is not merely the permission, but the responsibility to plead with God to make you obey. What do you do? You, well, what you do with this is you just weave this into your prayer life. You just, you just pray this to God before you go, the, go out the door and go about your day. You launch this prayer to the throne room when facing temptation. That's why it's there in the text for you to take it and use it in the trenches. Make it your prayer. Don't you see the greatest, in fact, the only weapon you have? on the pleasure-filled path of perseverance is desperate and urgent dependence. But then you notice in verse 36, the writer digs a little deeper. He moves beneath the behavior to the, on the surface to the heart that produces the behavior, and it is both liberating and radical. Look what he says, verse 36. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies cause my heart to be inclined to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Cause my heart to be inclined, God. Inclined to what? To his testimonies, to his word. And, and, and you can tell what he's asking, right? You could totally tell what he's asking. God, I need you to incline the appetite and desires of my soul I need you to bend the very longings and cravings of my heart to hunger for your word instead of dishonest gain. Because something you may know about me, one of the great flaws of my character, I fear, is that I absolutely detest eggs. I hate them. They're the most loathsome and, and gross food on the planet to me. I mean, seriously. I mean, unless they're cake, baked into a cake or bread, they are runny or smelly or gag-inducing, and my appetite is profoundly not inclined to them. You cannot rewire my brain to make me start loving eggs, much though Susan would, would like me to. But even though you can't make me start loving eggs, you can have the wires of your heart rewired to hunger for God's word as the feast of your soul. You can because that's exactly what he asks for in verse 36. Why? Why? Because he knows that he can't be trusted. He prays this way because he knows he can't be trusted. On his own, he will meander and he will wander into the polluted streams of sin and self-glory. He knows that inside his chest, he possesses the most lethal instrument of destruction known to man, known as the sinful human heart. Therefore, he needs, he pleads with God to transform the taste buds of his soul to keep him from pursuing a path that would otherwise lead to his own destruction. So the question is, church, did you know that? I mean, not to sound overly negative, but did you know that you cannot be trusted? That Judas Iscariot, the traitor, lurks just beneath our ribcage, that Jezebel, the harlot queen, lies just beneath the surface, 
that without the mediating grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will always be inclined to do what God has forbidden. That's precisely what drove him to pray, incline my heart to your testimonies. Because if God doesn't do that, if he does not incline our heart to his testimonies, the gravitational pull of our soul will always be to dishonest gain, which is exactly what he says. Look again at verse 36. Incline my heart, cause my heart to be inclined to your testimonies. Here it is and not to dishonest gain. Which is interesting, isn't it? The opposite of appetite for God's word is dishonest gain. Which means he's talking about the love of money here. He's talking about greed here. He's talking about materialism here. He pits the two against one another as if to warn us that either we will find supreme satisfaction in God through his word or we will automatically gravitate toward the seductions of greed and wealth and that is exactly what he is saying. Church, this is really serious. Not because money is inherently evil but it is inherently dangerous. I mean, we have the opposite of the Midas touch. Remember the Greek myth Midas and everything he touched turned to gold? But you see, our hearts are so sinful that all the gold that we touch can easily turn into an idol that has the potential to destroy us. And you remember, don't you, the chilling words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6? I mean, they're in your notes. He says, those who desire to get rich. It's not those who are rich. I mean, if God gave that to you, that, that's, that, that presents its own set of challenges. But those who desire to get rich, that's the issue, fall into temptation and a snare. And many harmful and ruinous desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all the evils, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Church, the question is, do you see any of that in your life? Is your heart inclined toward greed and gold and gain? Can you sense the growing cancer of discontentment in your life? Are there any warning signs at all, at all, that you are beginning to wander away from the faith as you hunt down the American dream and financial security? Do you love money, in other words, is what I'm asking. How would you know? How would you know if there were any warning signs? How would you know if you were beginning to wander away from the faith? Well, you would know by thinking about who you are and what you do and what you crave when no one can see you except God. Because mark my words, what you think about. The God that you worship is what you think about the most when you are in solitude. So what do we do then? I mean, we live in an economy. We need money to operate and function and survive on the planet. There's not a thing inherently wrong with getting a paycheck. There's nothing inherently wrong with asking for a pay raise. It's not sinful to be wealthy There's nothing even wrong with enjoying non-essential luxuries like ice cream. It's a luxury. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that. We can enjoy that even in a way that glorifies God. The question is, how do we be freed from greed and the magnet of materialism is the question. How exactly do we persevere in our faith firm until the end and not plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction? That's the question. And the answer is, the answer is, is that we have to love something more than money to not love money. We have to find something that glitters more than gold so that we do not be infatuated by the glitter of gold. And the only thing that fits that description is the treasure of the sacred text Which is exactly why Psalm 19 verse 10 says that God's word is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
That's exactly why Psalm 119 verse 14 says, in the way of your testimonies, I rejoice as much as in all riches. That's why verse 72 says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Why? Because in and through the word, Jesus Christ is there, ready to meet you and satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Finally, notice where he goes in verse 37. He's still talking about the need for God to renovate his life and notice that he moves from the feet to the heart to the eyes. Look at the text. Turn away my eyes, or you could very justly render it. Cause my eyes to not look at worthless things. Let me live in your way. I mean, you see what he's asking for, don't you? He is asking for a God given intervention as he moves throughout the trenches of life, as he's bombarded on every side by temptation that seeks to entice and allure him. That's what he's asking for. Because he knows, he understands that when he closes his Bible, or rolls up his scroll, I should say, and he goes about his day, that he is about to enter into a world filled with shava. Worthless things. Deceitful, fraudulent, empty pleasures that claim that they can do alone what Christ can do, namely satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. And he prays this because he knows himself all too well. He knows that his eyes will trigger the tentacles of lust and greed and coveting and pride and discontentment in his soul. And so what does he do? He cries out with an urgent expression of radical dependence, even for where his eyes go, because he knows at the end of the day, the issue is not a lens or a cornea or a pupil issue, but rather what we gawk at and look at and covet with our eyes is always, always, always an issue of the soul. So the obvious question is then, how are you doing with your eyes? With lust, porn, with coveting, with greed, with discontentment? What are, what are the vain things in life that charm you the most? Outside these four walls and a roof, what, what are the things that most easily get your attention and pull your gaze away from Jesus Christ? Because no matter what it is, no matter what it is, it is possible, it is possible to control your eyes and what they do. And it 100% depends upon your relationship to God's word. Because the question is not so much, do you read it? The question is not so much, do you believe that there are some true things in it? The question is, do you cling to it with moment by moment white knuckle tenacity? Or are you what Christ describes in John 15, 5, a branch that abides in the vine? Brings us to urgent expression number three. Urgent expression number three, you must plead with God to rekindle new desires. You must plead with God to rekindle new desires. Because you know that God has given all of us an imagination, and there, that's a good thing. And there is a sanctified use of the environment, of, of our environment, of our imagination. And a question I have is, have you ever used your imagination to play out what it would be like if you got entangled in sin? I don't mean imagine the sin itself. I mean, imagine what it would be if you ruined your life with sin. Have you ever done that before? I believe that's a sanctified use of the imagination. For instance, imagine what it would be like if you got entangled in an adulterous relationship and you got caught. You got caught. What would it, what would it do if you got exposed in adultery? You can imagine the initial terror and horror of getting found out the looks on people's faces of your spouse, a family of friends when they find out what you've done. Imagine the shock, the disbelief, the hurt, the anger, the tears. 
Imagine the public shame and humiliation for, for you, for your family, for your church. The permanent shattering of trust, the permanent shattering of your reputation. I mean, you're never going to live this down. Imagine the hurt and disappointment of everyone who knows you. Imagine the hours, the hours, unless you bail and leave and chicken out and disappear. Imagine the hours and hours of conversations that you have to have again and again and again with family and friends and your elders as you have to tell them the story again of your selfish, idolatrous act that led to the destruction of your life and the ruin of your entire family. And then, and then, worst of all, imagine the public shame and reproach that it would bring on Christ himself. The mockery that it would make him to the world. I mean, your, your effectiveness as an ambassador and representative of the Lord Jesus Christ are effectively, at least for a while, over. And in that scenario, if you were in that scenario, God help us. You would just give anything to go back and reverse the situation and make it that it did not happen. And yet it will be too late. You played with fire. And you got burned. And now you've got to live with it. We don't have to go down that road. <laughs> and we must not go down that road either. And the way we don't go down that road, the way we don't crash and burn our lives with sin, is this thing in the Bible called the fear of God. That's right, fearing God is the way that we don't ruin our lives on the jagged rocks of sin. And that's exactly what the poet tells us in verse 38. Look at the text. He says, and there's a couple different ways to translate this in the Hebrew. I'll give you kind of a literal wooden translation. He says, establish your word to your servant, which leads to the fear of you. Which produces the fear of you. And there it is, fearing God. Fearing God. And we, and we kind of struggle with that issue of fearing God, right? Because how, how are you supposed to, how, how do you love a God that you're supposed to fear? How do you fear a God that you're supposed to love? We kind of have some, some pushback and, and some, we struggle with this issue of fearing God. And yet the problem is not so much that you are called to fear God. The problem is in how you define what it means to fear God. Because get this, what it means, what it does not mean rather to fear God is that we fear him like a bloodthirsty monster. It does not mean that we fear him like an unstable, abusive father. It does not mean that we fear him the way we fear cancer or rapists lurking in shadowy parking lots. No, rather, to fear God means, to fear God is the raw, delicious terror that you begin to taste in your soul when you come to grips with the magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. When you begin to grasp the towering majesty of God, that the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence, to fear God means that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you are, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. And he's the greatest reality in the universe. To fear God means that you tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. But the question is, how, how would you know if you did fear God? I mean, if fearing God is the way to not go down the, the seductive road of pleasures that would destroy our lives, if, if fearing God is the remedy and the antidote for that, and it is, then the question is, how would we know if we feared God? And how we know is that you would ask yourself these four questions. I've used these before. I, I, I love these. How do you know if you fear God? You answer these four questions. Number one, are there some sins that you would never do at church, but you would do somewhere else? Number two, who are you and what do you do and what do you long for when no one can see you except God? Number three, 
If you knew that you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible and no one would ever know about it or find out about it or see it except God, would you do it? And number four, is the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins the fear of getting caught and not who God is? Because there's a radical difference between those two things. And how you answer each of those questions determines if God is your God or people are your God, which again brings us to the question, well, how is the fear of God produced in our lives? The psalmist tells us exactly how it's produced. Look at the end of verse 38. He says, establish your word to your servant, which leads to the fear of you. The word is the agent that produces holy reverence and treasuring, trembling before him as the delight and prize of the soul. Because you have to understand, unless we see God, unless we really see him, the God who spoke galaxies into existence, who numbers the stars, who became a man, who calmed the sea with his voice, who was slain for sinners, who rose from the dead, who is coming again to slaughter his enemies and to build his kingdom. Unless we see and are captivated by this God, we will always just be casual and lukewarm and profoundly susceptible to the sins that would otherwise destroy us. You've got to see God. And you've got to see him for the treasure that he is and which means we have got to see him as he has revealed himself in the text. Back to our scenario at the beginning. I think the poet did what we did. I think he played out in his imagination what it would have been like for him to go down the forbidden pleasure path of sin and iniquity, what it would be like if he shipwrecked his life on the crushing rocks of destruction. And he absolutely does not want that to happen because look what he says in verse 39. He says, turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your decrees are good. This is incredible. This is a man who knows. This is a man who's keenly aware that even a single sin allowed to live in his life is, having a, is like having a rattlesnake in his bed. He knows that a single drop of poison pollutes the entire cup of wine. That sin is like playing with fire, that small flames are easy enough to justify, but the problem is sin is the most unstable element in the universe. You give it space to, and room to grow and to breathe. It's just a matter of time before it explodes out of control and destroys us. And so therefore he prays, turn away my reproach, which I dread. In other words, intervene in my life with your sovereign power so that I don't go down that road. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. But how? How would God do this? How would God answer this prayer? The psalmist already answered his own question. Look at the end of verse 39. He says, For mishpatacha tovim. Your decrees are good. Your decrees are good. The way that God would keep him from the path of destroying his life with sin is the goodness of God's decrees. That's how. That's the answer. Why? Because the decrees of God possess the very goodness of God and therefore reading them and studying them and delighting in them and meditating on them and, and depending on them and getting them absorbed into the bloodstream of our soul is the only, and I mean the only way to not implode our lives on the atom bomb of sin. The only question is, this morning church, do you have a rattlesnake in your bed? Are there drops of poison in your wine glass? Are there, are you tolerating little flames and embers of sin in your life? Because you know where that's going to lead. 
the cracks of compromise will begin to accumulate and eventually the dam will break and we will be overwhelmed by a flood of iniquity and the pain that brings. But again, you don't have to go down that road and you must not either. There is a better way. In fact, the only way is the goodness of God's decrees. So you realize what the psalmist is doing here, and I close with this. You realize what he's doing here. He is meditating on God's word, isn't he? He's meditating on God's word, on the supremacy, the centrality, and the absolute sufficiency of the word. And as he does so, he becomes so overwhelmed with what a treasure that it is that he's holding in his hand that he cannot help but say, Hineh, behold, verse 40, I long for your precepts. I long for them. Literally, let me live in your righteousness. And there it is. A righteous life that perseveres to the end. And that's all I want for you, church. That's all I want for you. Is that you would long with deep hunger and, and desire and craving and longing for the precepts of God's word that you would taste and see that God is good in and through his word. That the sacred text would be more precious to you than gold, than much fine gold and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That you would be able to echo with the psalmist in 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we long also, like the psalmist, for your precepts. And we do cry out with him to allow us to live in your righteousness. We really need your help, Lord. We are but beggars. This is true. All we are are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace, Lord. All we are are human receptacles of need. We are human vats of weakness. And you are glorified. You are put on display through our weakness. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to up the ante of dependence in our lives and let us look to you through your word and that you would transform our lives in a way that would bring great glory to your son in whose name we pray.